Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and the mandated number of files for a week in culture. And in those files, the scent of Molly Bloom, the woods of Roger Deacon, the thin skin of Elon Musk, and a cure for claustrophobia from Jackie Irvine and Lockie Morris. And it's in the scent world of Leo and Molly that we begin, with the latest from Koshkane Dance Theatre Company. The company's show Go to Blazers mixes music, VR, and scent to to offer a sniff inside the door of number 7 Eccles Street, where the Blooms are getting ready to meet the day in the Calypso chapter of James Joyce's Ulysses. Created by choreographer David Bulger and his team, the show deploys the knowledge of Justine Cooper, a dancer and scent maker. She spoke to Culturefile about creating a smellscape for Eccles Street. I'm Justine Cooper. I'm a dancer with Cushcane Dance Theatre. And I'm also a fragrance alchemist. David approached me around the idea of making a scent map from the chapter. So trying to extract the smells that are actually in the chapter and find a way to create them, recreate them. My mum is an aromatherapist, so I've grown up with essential oils used medicinally and and for the emotional body since a young child. So in my own self-care practice, I'd work with essential oils a lot. You end up sharing things, obviously, with the family that become, you know, part of the project you're working on. The dancers and we share, you know, all these things that we do to help ourselves keep, um, keep well and happy and centred and grounded. It's that idea of how to, how to care for yourself with these distilled soul essences from plants and weave them into, you know, the daily practice. I would make um, what I call it body love, which is arnica oil infused with anti-inflammatory essential oils like eucalyptus, wintergreen, um, rosemary, peppermint, camphor, these sorts of things. I'd also make things like peppermint spray just to, to, or joy spritz which is like orange, wild orange essential oil and peppermint essential oil distilled in witch hazel, a little bit of alcohol and water and that's just to uplift and um, brighten the energy. So tell us about what struck you about scent when you had to, to look at this chapter Calypso of Ulysses. I suppose just how fragrant the chapter is. Like, it's so full to the brim of images through the sense of smell. And um, it was really, really interesting, like, as a dancer, to get to work with how to choreograph scent, you know, how to bring the alchemy of different essential oils together or different spices to create the dance of the, the scent alchemy to represent what was in the book. And I suppose allow the audience just to imbibe differently you know, from the page. So maybe give us an example of that. What is one of the the scents that you're using and and how do you deploy it? What word are you using for using scent in a dance? Yeah, well, I suppose I'd say we would offer the scent, you know, through different creative means, whether it was in a roller bottle or, a, um, or in a spray or it may be uh, placed upon an object. Uh, 
one of the scents that um, I suppose I found really interesting to make was the scent of the nymph, Calypso, and how to sort of dream poetically into a what does, what does the nymph smell like? When I first started, I was trying to think of you know, what the flavour palettes would be, the scent palette. And so I've been working with Sweet Vermouth from Valencia Island, uh, Sea Salt, uh, Vanilla, Jasmine, Patchouli and Rose. Jasmine's one of the, I suppose, the top notes in it. It's a very big aphrodisiac essential oil. I suppose what I was looking for was really um, seductive scents that were beguiling and um, would draw you in when it came to that particular um, fragrance alchemy. We have a, a selection of scents on the table in front of us. Uh, what have we got there, Justine? So we've got the scent of the nymph here, but we've also got ginger, tea dust and biscuit mush, which is another scent from, uh, from the actual chapter. Uh, well, we have a little sample of the nymph now that we know uh, what we should be getting there. Let us go forth. Let me just... You've got a really, really tiny little file of something there. Now, that's... Unlabeled. Unlabeled, I know, I know. Just, you know... It, we, on the spot. <laughs> there it is. Oh, look, the sense of smell has detected. There it is. <laughs> She's a little bit dangerous, the nymph. So, um, you know, looking to sort of, I suppose, uh, find just... The patchouli has, has a real base sort of grounded energy, but the jasmine sort of, when it weaves together, forms this... Um, pulling power I'd call it you know it's light mixing with the heaviness of the patchouli and you get this kind of bassy tendrils I call them <laughs> it's a time traveller d- direct to you know a place a moment an emotion a sensation and it's really visceral it's quite it's so embodied, I suppose, because it's coming from the outside to the inside. Yeah, it's a huge physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, um, and energetic experience, I think. Justine Cooper there, and you heard nymph music from the show's soundtrack by Dennis Clohessy. Go to Blazers, which is part of Ulysses 2.2, is at Koshkame's Fairview Base in Dublin until November 20th. And next, Paddy Woodworth has a woody and worthwhile addition to our shelf of essential nature writing. This time, Paddy adds Wildwood, a hymn to wood and woods by English writer Roger Deacon, to the Naturalist bookshelf. Some great books are, in the best sense, partly made of other books. Roger Deacon's Wildwood, A Journey Through Trees, draws on poets, social commentators and natural history writers for some of its extravagant, enchanting foliage. But it has a unique colour and sap and texture of its own. At one point, 
Deacon quotes Italo Calvino's definition of a classic as a book that has not finished what it has to say. He was far too modest to have imagined this, but this description perfectly fits Deacon's own work. I well remember the pleasures and the insights that I found in Wildwood on the first reading while I was writing my own environment book. But coming back to it now, 15 years later, I can't think of another book I've picked up again for this series that gives me such delight, so many happy surprises. It is so densely packed with rich nuggets that I'm already promising myself to browse it a third time, and soon. I think it will always have more to say to me. There is a sharp poignancy to this pleasure, because Deacon, the author of the highly successful Waterlogged, developed a brain tumour while he was finishing Wildwood. He didn't live to see his second book published. His vivid opening account of the trees, 300 no less, and the meticulous craftwork that he uncovers as he restores his Elizabethan Suffolk farmhouse fizzes with life, but it is gently shadowed by death. This sets the tone for some 30 short chapters that have no clear narrative or temporal structure between them and shoot off in a hundred different directions. But they are organically bonded by a passion for everything to do with trees and a loving appreciation of the diverse people who manage them as foresters or who work in myriad fashion with the wood trees produce. In fact, I might quibble a little with his title, Wildwood, because culture runs very happily with nature here from start to finish. Deegan's keenly aware that most landscapes, even the Australian outback, are deeply marked by humans. And like Simon Shama, he sees this, in many cases, as something to celebrate, not to lament. I'm not sure he would have liked that currently fashionable term, rewilding. Deacon certainly seeks out solitary experiences in wild places. Sleeping out on woodland floors, inserting himself into the hollow trunk of a great oak, and reading books while reclining halfway up a massive poplar. Yet he doesn't imagine he is in a wilderness. He's scathing about the disdain for nature and craft in industrialised agriculture, but he has a deep and very knowledgeable appreciation of husbandry. His sustained hymn to trees and wood encompasses a journey to Kazakhstan to find the ancestral home of the domestic apple and to the Jaguar factory in Coventry to celebrate walnut veneer dashboards. He reflects in passing on Roland Barthes' observation that cars are the 20th century equivalent of Gothic cathedrals. And then he talks about Ruskin. But any wooden object can launch an appreciative essay from pencils to early aircraft propellers. He is a skilled woodsman and craftsman himself, coppicing by day, carving a new handle for a broken billhook in the evening and plashing a hedgerow the next morning. But he never exhibits the macho arrogance that sometimes goes with such skills. It is his unassuming humility that carries him to the heart of things. He seeks out sociable company among numerous sculptors and painters of nature, including David Nash and Mary Newcomb in England. In Australia's Whipstick Forest, he goes on magical excursions with John Woolsey, an artist who borrows energy from the aftermath of wildfires. I dance through the bush, Woolsey says, 
moving the board over the burnt branches, letting them do the drawing. This artist also sometimes buries his paintings for years. This is so that they bear the imprints of roots, the nibbles of termites, nature's comments, nature's signatures. Everywhere Deacon walks or climbs or lies down, he celebrates the interconnectedness of things, whether they be artworks or cultures or ecosystems. He is permanently wide-eyed with wonder at the sexual life of a particular flower or the vital dynamism of wood grain, even in an ancient oak table. His book appropriately finishes unfinished, as he tends a bower he has created on his farm with the aid of four pairs of ash trees planted twenty years earlier. He brings his bed there and dreams, he writes in valediction, of how this lattice of living limbs will continue to dance long after I am gone. One can only hope that Ash Dieback never reaches the little corner of Suffolk that Deacon made so very special. Paddy Woodworth there, carefully replacing Roger Deacon's wild wood on the naturalist bookshelf. And if you're a fan of bookshelves, the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin, this coming Sunday is the place for you. Culture File will be recording a special programme as part of Dublin Book Festival there, as Paddy invites some of his favourite Irish naturalists to tell us about some of their own bookshelves. On the panel, Richard Nairn, Jane Clark and Tina Claffey. That's at 3pm. And for the early risers, I'll be in conversation with West Cork Rainforest Guardian Owen Dalton and wild voice Aina Nilauna about wildness in a few of its many forms. That's from 1pm at the National Botanic Gardens Glasnevin tomorrow, Sunday 13th Nov. A collaboration between the artists Lockie Morris and Jackie Irvine is currently powering an exhibition of video poetry at the complex in Dublin's north inner city. Resettings lights up the complex's ex-warehouse space with a series of screens in unexpected positions, each showing tiny moments of fluttering, wavering, drifting, accompanied by a soundtrack which seems to move from one screen to the next, integrating the parts into a very welcoming whole. first came to prominence with the pioneering Dublin collective Blue Funk, but for many years her practice, like Morris's, has been a solo one. Bringing the pair together now to create work collaboratively was the idea of curator Marco Gorman, who welcomed Culturefile to the gallery. We are in the complex gallery space, 21 Arden Street East. I am Mark O'Gorman, the gallery curator and manager. Yeah. And I'm standing here with Jackie Irvine, who is in the show, along with Lockie Morris. The show is called Resettings. The concept for the show, I suppose, it all stemmed really from how I programme. So when I'm programming exhibitions in the space... I kind of sit down and I have a group of artists, some who I've done studio visits, some who have proposed exhibitions, and some who I just really want to work with. Usually when I'm sitting down, I'm just thinking, I have these lists of artists, and I'm thinking, how can I pair a group 
certain artists together and it's usually at the beginning it's just a good feeling so I'll sit down and I'll think of artists and I'll think of the possibilities around the show get a bit of a good feeling and then kind of start to analyse that why did I get the good feeling maybe start picking it apart a little bit more formally and start thinking about is this can this work usually it always does work for some reason or another there's always some kind of synchronicities I would say are all these kind of different things happening as a result Lucky, what is the, the division of labour here? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I try not to think about it, to be honest. I don't really like to think in those terms. It's kind of, it really is a, yeah, it's a really open and, cross, you know, really good collaboration in that regard. I don't like, right, that's my piece over there and that's my piece over there. It doesn't really work like that. They bleed, we bleed into each other. Jackie, you, 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 of course, um, have a long uh, history in collaborative work. I mean, that's where you come from in the first place. It is, and I never thought I'd go back there. <laughs> so I was... It was so good an experience, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it had its time and place. So it was super good to do this with Lockie. I, I was a bit, you know... It turned out to be a conversation, in, you know, more than anything. And that's the... Um, and that's the gorgeous thing about it. So even you were saying, well, it's not actually... What is the division of labour? What's the division of labour in a conversation? That's an amazing freedom to have with somebody else's work, that they allow you play and go, hey, what about this? Hey, there's this movement that's amazing in this little piece. And what if it sounds like this, that movement? And then I'd send it back lock and go, oh, yeah, we can go there with that. And then how about this thing that relates to that? So all the time there was a conversation going like that. It was super exciting to be able to have a conversation that's visual and sonic. I was having a conversation with Jackie about, you know, the big disappointment of putting anything in the white spaces. I used to go, oh, well, I used to think this piece of work was good. And then you put it under this blank white cube white space and it just dies a death a freedom for the white space was was a real joy for me here i think yeah can you remember the moment when one of the great decisions happened which is you have two screens which are hung very high up in the ceiling taking the advantage of the sort of double height space here and they look amazing can you remember how that decision uh, happened yeah. yeah, that was me. I just got... <laughs> I hadn't arrived from Derry yet, and this thing had happened, and but I had to totally agree. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I just came in and go, that goes, that goes up there, and that goes over there. Just stick it up. Yeah, no, I just wanted this thing needed to go so high that as somebody coming to the work, the, there's a yearning, okay, there's a yearning. Somewhere in all of it, I have to say, there's a yearning for the world, for something more than the world. I wanted to pass on that yearning. So you come to it and that's really damn high. You can't reach it and you want to see it and you can see it and it's still yearning to be beyond you, to beyond, be beyond its own self and to be beyond even this space that it's in. I wanted that yearning, and that's why it is so high. It's yearning to be somewhere else, and the same as with that piece, the other really high piece, it has the same feel. And that's really probably what's propelled those things to the top of the space as far as they can go. It feels like some sort of a cure for claustrophobia or something. Well, maybe. <laughs> 
like, as you say, your attention is drawn up there, but you don't sort of stop at the screen. It's like as though you carry on out of the space. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I wanted. But, I mean, after, what, two and a half years of COVID, you know, and, and then I broke my shoulder. So um, there's been a lot of claustrophobia going on. So, yes, it is that. It is, it is a, uh, yeah, a gesture towards elsewhere, towards somewhere else, towards more. Jackie Irvine ending that report, and you heard also from Lockie Morrison, Marco Gorman, Resettings has now closed. Should you get off Twitter following sensitive billionaire Elon Musk's takeover of the microblogging site? Hundreds of thousands of users apparently have and moved their short messages to the world to a similar but not identical platform called Mastodon. They might have the right idea, says our tech soothsayer, Professor Ashling Kelleher. Mastodon. Mastodon, I think. Isn't Mastodon. it? A, it's an old uh, dinosaur or something, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, it's a, a mastodon is a proboscidean belonging to the extinct genus mammoth, which is a strange kind of a name for your new technology, isn't it? Yeah, but it's kind of fun. <laughs> you quit Twitter, I think, 10 years ago, as far as I remember. I did. I was on Twitter for like a month and I was like, <laughs> this is not for me, my friend. I think that was in 2011, mainly because I followed people that I deeply respected and then realized what banality came out of them when they had access to this tool and was like, no, no, no. And that's before the culture wars broke out. Oh, that was when it was still just saying what you had for your dinner. But I am a stealth lurker on Twitter. So I will admit to that, that I have an account where so I can just see things. As an academic, I think Twitter has been really, really useful as a tool for underrepresented folks who can't take advantage of the typical channels for you know, kind of boosting your research or getting ideas out there or getting invited to things. So I fully admit my own kind of like white person privilege and being able to be like, ah, oh, yeah, I quit it. You know, I was like, fine, I can continue with my um, kind of career building in different ways where journalists spend a lot of time on Twitter and then maybe take that as meaning this is what is actually happening in the, in the kind of like the outside external world. Like that's kind of like the big problem is like why I don't want to spend time on that is that it seems to amplify and bring out the worst in people and then deliberately kind of conflate engagement with kind of like tremendous activity. You know, if this is really supposed to be like the public square, the town square, the public sphere, I mean, I don't think any of these folks have read any Habermas. Right? They definitely haven't read Heidegger and they're not big on philosophy in general about what is the role, the ethical role, the responsibility to whose voices are heard and amplified. The example with Twitter right now, it's like it's free speech for all unless you're making fun of me. I'm praying that none of those responses are actually from Elon Musk. And I'm hoping he has a few uh, AIs running on Twitter that's answering people who make fun of him. I hope Oh, no, this is this is 110% where he's spending his time, right? It's like hunting down parody accounts. I mean, if you have the most thin-skinned, allegedly, person in the world running a company, maybe stay being a user or, you know, the best advice I could give him be like, maybe you should get off this thing. There's a lot of uh, humour being generated because an introduction to Mastodon is basically you must squeeble your grips and then put a flip on the blap 
and uh, that will then you'll be all set up to go. It's not at the moment uh, what used to be called a user-friendly tool, but you're kind of pointing that, that out as its advantage. Tell us a bit about Mastodon and how it, uh, what it is and how it differs from Twitter. Well, obviously, this is the quintessential revenge of the nerds. And as a massive nerd, you can't believe how much <laughs> I love this. I'm like, yes, it's hard. This idea of that there isn't like this generic space that you can join instances. Okay, and they use the word instance, but you can say, imagine it as a server that is run. So whether it's like the social, uh, mastodon.social, it could be mastodon.castleknock, where I'm from, which has got all the excitement that is generated about a, a suburb in Dublin. Does that exist? Oh God, listen, it's massive. All we do is talk about Colin Farrell, <laughs> right? Because he's obviously the most famous Castleknock. There is a .ie Mastodon, that I do know. <laughs> I'll be making the Castleknock one later on today. So come <laughs> join me. And that's what we'll be talking about. The idea that you can join an instance. So you join a server, which can then be connected to many, many other servers. But you can have both local and more kind of federal, or and like not to get too kind of Star Trekky on here, but you can have local conversations that you're interested in, but you also have access to the broader community as well. What I do find compelling about it is that the instance that you join, the server that you join, whoever administers that, and you can administer, you can set up your own which might be just for your family. Think of it as a glorified WhatsApp group, for example. Um, so if you want to see every single photo that your cousins have ever taken, you could set up your own server too. But then that also gives you access to a broader federation. What's nice is that whoever administers that instance, they decide on the rules and regulations. So there's something kind of, to me, compelling about that. And I'm like, yes, of course, it's not Twitter. And maybe, the, you know, people who are frustrated going, I've spent the last two days trying to join this particular server and I can't. And I'm like, well, maybe that's a good thing. So to me, I feel like it's not necessarily that we have to run away from one thing and expect it to be replicated perfectly elsewhere. It is that are there other instances of technologies that we can develop that have some built in mechanisms that can prevent some of the worst behaviors that we have seen and been exposed to? through this kind of freewheeling neoliberal attitude that comes very much from kind of the, the West Coast ethos here in the United States. This is all happening at a time, I mean, just uh, yesterday we saw huge layoffs at, uh, following up on Twitter, we saw huge layoffs at Facebook. Have we reached the high water mark of that kind of invasive panopticon version of, of uh, the internet? I don't know whether this is also some fallout from the uh, the pandemic. You know, everybody's in a bit of a funny state of mind as well right now. But this seems like a natural flow to things. These technology companies, if they ha exist in this idea of essential growth, 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 there has to become a limit to that in some ways, as opposed to like, what is the value for people to participate? In this. What is there in the background of Mastodon that will stop it becoming some sort of painful monopoly? Honestly, I think initially the fact that it's hard to use. I like that. <laughs> that can't no, be it. That no, can't be it, it. It's great. It's like I'm just doing a bit of a technology flex here, as my students would say. If you look in the Mastodon page, it it invites you to join its Patreon. You know, be like you would for your favorite podcast or newsletter. I mean, that's the the level at which it's been funded. I mean, I think it's it is owned by somebody. A German engineer, Eugene Rochko, owns the technology, but you don't have to pay him to set up an instance of it. So it's quite different from most of the things that have come out of America. Yeah, I think it would be very interesting to follow how it progresses. 
this idea that you know Twitter assembled as well a huge team of engineers and really worked on the user experience. So there was that you know it was very simple to set it up and to get going on Twitter and to follow people. So I think there is this idea of like how do you balance the development of uh, kind of thoughtful and purposeful regulations at the get go, which is seems to be what we, what we're seeing with Mastodon, and then how people will then use that. So now, what does it mean to say something nefarious as a toot, which is the kind of the way that Mastodon is um, describing um, posts? Nobody's going to say that ever, though, are they? I just did, and it actually mortifies me to say I just tooted. Ah, we'll get over it. Professor Ashling Kelleher there from her desk at USC School of Cinematic Arts, Los Angeles, on Mastodon. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more parody divination next week. Though just for her podcast, because on the airwaves, we'll have the latest Culture File debate when we'll wonder, is it possible to love football anymore? That's 6.30pm next Saturday, 19th of November. Till then, bye now.